I'm Peyton. This is the Rhizomatic Reader Podcast. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Rick Montalongo about Raul Dahl's novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You can find the shorter, edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. What's up, scholar friend, brother? I'm good, man. You're good? Living the COVID dream. The COVID dream, huh? Which lately I've been having lots of vivid COVID dreams. Mm. Like last night I was, I don't know if it has something to do with the the Camino walk or something, but part of my dream I remember I was in some sort of cathedral and there was some sort of service or something. And, and there were like one of the readers couldn't talk. Like he was talking gibberish (laughs) and had to walk away. It was weird. I've been having weird dreams like that. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's the summer heat. Actually it probably is. I did. I've been working out outside. And it's really, really hot right now. It's really hot. Even your voice is coming through differently. (laughs) Why? Well, for some reason today... It's very clear. Oh, it's very clear. Oh, it must be the microphone then. Yeah, the microphone is high quality, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll just start using it then when we have our, um, our weekly calls, you know? And I'm trying not to be like this close to the microphone, but I'm always afraid the sound isn't going to pick up. So I try to keep an eye on the little microphone thing down in the corner of the zoom screen to make Uh sure that it's fluctuating. (laughs) I I like, um, I haven't listened to Alan's podcast, but the previous ones, like um, I think he sounds different in the recordings like one time angie walked in and i was listening to your pilot episode and she said oh i can hear pete and i was like it doesn't sound like him so for me it sounds like you sound different yeah i think that but for uh, others i guess like for angie she knew immediately who, who was talking it's it's interesting because when you record the intro and the outro, you know, I do that separately because I never know what I'm going to say in the intro until after I've edited the episode. Mm-hmm. And then the outro stuff is all the stuff you sent me, like, you know, your bio, how to contact you and all of the stuff about where you can find the podcast. So that always gets recorded on a separate day. And I'm still trying to figure out how to make um how to make even the tenor of the voice sound the same, because I try to talk slow and articulately so that people can understand things, um, and also because of transcription. So yes. I'm doing like you know once we get once we get going with this conversation, it won't matter. It'll just flow freely, and we have a lot to talk about. Um, a lot. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see. I'm so excited to have you on the show, to awesome. have you on the uh, episode. 
what picture are you going to use on my final slide? Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I need you to send me a picture that you would like me to use. Because I noticed all the um, media stuff. You have the, it's, what I like about it is it's not a pro shot, like a headshot. And that's why I was asking. I was like, don't use my Sam's headshot. That's always no, 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 no. You, so make a note to yourself. And if you can send that to me today. Oh, I already know. Okay, well, perfect. That's why I was asking. Yeah, maybe. It's not a silly picture. It's just a picture I like. Unfortunately, Angie's cropped out of it, but oh well. Well, that's okay. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to try. I don't know if I can actually do this. I have to think about whether it's, yeah. I'm going to try actually for this episode to track down images from this, um, from the illustrator of the book because I did some research on the, on the person who illustrates his books and... I find that whole thing to be a separate, fascinating area of books. The New York Times Book Review podcast a couple weeks ago, actually, Pamela Paul, who's the editor of New York Times Book Review, she had interviewed uh, some famous kind of cartoonist person who's done a lot of illustrations and uh, worked with Maurice Sendak and other folks. and I, I found hearing about like what illustration, what the illustration world is like, to be really quite fascinating. No, especially for children's novels. In fact, um, I wish I had the. I don't know if you can, if I have to search it, but the copy I remember. We'll, we'll talk about this, but the copy I remember had better illustrations, in my opinion. And I and I and I'll probably talk about this. I remember those images. They weren't to me. This, I mean, it's good, but they're kind of scribbly. Um, the earlier copy that I remember reading, it was it was a little more detailed. And so, and do I, you think the illustrations are different? Yeah, they are. Um, this. Somewhere out there, uh, there's earlier editions that I believe have different a different illustrator because I don't remember mm. in my reading of the book way way back then these drawings um, because I remember when I was reading like I remember uh, how the grandparents were drawn and. Um, it's almost, it, it, not I remember, it's almost like the illustrations you find in Where the Sidewalk Ends. You yeah, know, the Shel Silverstein. Silverstein book. Yeah, you know, that type of more clearer illustrations. I could be wrong, but um, I remember that because when I read the sequel, when they go into space, and I know you're going to talk about this because, I mean, I'm prepared for a doll controversy because the sequel has even more sort of, I guess, controversial portrayals of like different people, immigrants possibly. Mm. And I remember those illustrations where even as a kid, when I saw the illustrations, I was like, okay, they, they, they look kind of 
<laughs> I, I didn't know. I don't know if I used the word offensive, but I was like, okay. <laughs> well, this is going to be a whole line of the discussion. Um, and you are correct that I was like, well, I hope <laughs> that Rick will be ready for me to talk about some of the problematic aspects of this book. Um, yeah. Although it's also, I've I never read the book prior to this. So mm -hmm. I'm really glad to finally have read it. I, I, oh, okay. It'll be an interesting, because I did make notes on one of your points where it's like uh, reading it as an adult compared to reading it as a child. Yeah, well, and there's, you know, with this story in particular, I think there's all this sort of media portrayal and the way that the story itself is captured in popular imagination, in, uh, particularly in this country, um, that makes the reading of the book itself something very different. But let's let's um yeah yeah let's not get into that too much although it doesn't really matter the flow of the conversation it really doesn't matter um it doesn't have to go in any particular order so we'll just go where where we go but i do appreciate you sending me this outline of your reading life and i would be interested in hearing you talk a little bit about this journey of remembering your reading life and how you think about the history of your reading life. Yeah. It was interesting to write it out. I never done a response to a question like that. So, so talk, what were you uh, thinking? About? Oh, are you already recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you started off or whatever. So, um, yeah, uh, I've never been asked the question, um, about your history of your reading life. And so to, I actually wrote down my response to the question before um, today's talk because I wanted to make sure I captured um, the essence of the question. And so I started thinking about like my current place at this time, you know, at the time of this recording. Um, we're still in quarantine, you know, we're dealing with the COVID crisis. And so if any good outcomes for me personally should come out of this moment of history in my personal life, it would be um, my reconnection to books and, and reading for the sake of um, enjoying reading. Um, a lot of my reading, I guess, for the past eight years or so have been more directly related to work. Um, reading research, reading work reports when I was administrator, you know, anything to help me advance in my career. And, and I really never read for pleasure. It kind of got lost in that mix of career advancement. And so now that everything has been put on pause in a way, um, it allowed me some time, some much needed time to reconnect to something that I know I, I love. And in, in reflecting on your question about the history, I started thinking about different phases of my life and in and, and, and answering your question, a reading life. And 
everything went back to me being a child. Um, I thought about like what book I should use for this conversation. And, and again, I went through each phase of my life uh, where I am currently. I thought about, well, maybe I could, um, you know, talk about a, an important piece of scholarship that has impacted me. And, and there are those titles. But then I'm like, well, no, that's still work. And then I started thinking about, okay, well, what about a student, you know, with a college student, for example? Um, what books could I think about as an undergraduate that made an impact on me? And again, some titles directly emerged. But then I said, but wait a second, that is me as a student slash emerging um, scholar. And, and again, it connects to work. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, all of these books, while I do enjoy reading them, I, I wanted a book that I recall bringing me like just pure pleasure. And, and some of those titles that I mentioned that could have been a response, they, yeah, I enjoyed them, but they didn't really bring me pleasure if that makes sense. There's sure. something to be said about um, grabbing onto something that you, that brings you joy after you, you like close the cover. And so, and so I went back further. <laughs> and so, uh, so I'm like, okay, let me go into my pre-college years. And, and again, uh, I started, I started thinking that I really loved reading and as a as a child and as a teenager and even in high school i was seen amongst my friends as sort of a nerdish bookish type and you know i went to school in the 80s where clicks and your hobbies were part of your identity and so i was sort of that weird kid that you know i had friends that were the preps i had friends that were the rockers and the list goes on and on but if they would ask what was rick you know they would say well rick's kind of like this um quiet kind of nerdy guy and and so i thought about why that was attached to me well especially in junior high and high school i was really into like fantasy novels uh, i read again like lord of the rings and and i was really into space too mm -hmm. and so i i really wasn't into fiction I, re I read a lot of things about nasa astronauts and and even in my high even in high school in my bedroom i had pictures of the shuttle <laughs> and and things like that and so my I friends knew my friends knew i was really into space but Beyond that, I liked sci-fi novels. Um, yeah. I didn't really get into sci-fi TV shows, um, but I got into um, anything sci-fi related or that dealt with space. And so again, I started reflecting. I was like, okay, so that connects to my college years because the reason why I started off my college years as a meteor meteorology major is because I wanted to work at NASA, um, especially with weather related things. I, I knew even at that time that weather is connected to rocket ship launchings and things like that. And it was sort of like a behind the scenes um, 
job or row at NASA. I didn't want to be an astronaut. I wanted to work, literally, I wanted to work in mission control, um, you know, doing weather forecasting and stuff. But then I was like, but, you know, even reading sci-fi and space stuff, I mean, that led to my quote unquote failed attempt at being a meteorology major because I only, I, I, in college, I learned very quickly that meteorology is not just, um, you know, looking out the window and ooing and aahing about the weather. It was about physics, especially physics and, and very advanced uh, calculus and things. And, and I was into science, I was into math and stuff, but not to that level. Okay, so I, I pushed the pause button. I was like, okay, but let me go back further. And long story short, I ended up where I began. I should have started at this point um, in answering your question, which is it, especially my elementary age years. And, and I thought about me as a kid and how my actions as a kid really formed and shaped everything that I just said, just, you know, over the past few minutes. And that was, I love to read. And I loved going into the public library and just getting lost in the bookshelves. And, and so I started thinking about, okay, what did I do as a kid um, that made me love reading and learning? And, and I always went back to summers uh, at the public library where my parents uh, even just knew that, you know, Rick's going out of the house at around 10 a.m. to walk to the library. They knew I was going straight to the library and they wouldn't even worry. Uh, you know, I would stay there until maybe after lunch or close to closing and I would walk back home. And so then that's where I found the answer to your question. I was like, I, to answer this question <clears throat> about my reading life, I have to start where reading began for me, and that is as a kid. And so that, that's where I came for today's book title, because I was like, what was the first big, quote unquote, real book that I read? And I remember I read um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory probably more than once. Uh, it was my go-to book. Uh, as a kid that I, I liked reading the first time. And then the previous summer, I'll be like, oh, let's get lost at the chocolate factory again. And I would pick up that book and read it, take it home. And, and at that time, even watch the movie as I read the book. I know we're gonna talk about the movie, uh, but it, 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 was just, I, it was just a book that just naturally emerged when I went through that process of um, my, my reading life. And, why I love to read and how I got lost. And I wanted to reattach myself to that joy and pleasure part that I remember as a kid. Well, one of the things that you sent me some notes about was just about actually your elementary school and, you know, coming from a working class background, your teachers. Mm -hmm. Will you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah. You also sent me some stuff about the Texas Readers Club, and I'm really, I mean, you know, because I saw it on Instagram. I'm yeah. fascinated about all of this, these early ways that people get into reading. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the Readers Club, Texas Readers Club, and I sent you pictures about uh, with four certificates that for some reason 
were in a box of other school certificates, but um, at least my parents kept those four Texas Reader Club certificates that were in the elementary um, ages. In fact, the certificates were in the second grade, the ones that were saved, the second grade, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, even the dates go back to 1975. And they're in pristine condition, by the way, which I thought was kind of neat, knowing that they were in a box in my garage. And so I thought about, like, you know, what did those certificates mean for me as a kid? And other than the joy, it made me, as an adult, reflect on how awesome my elementary school was and still is. It's still the Midway Park Elementary. Shout out to the Midway Park parents. Um, you know, the school is still there. It's still, I'm assuming, doing a wonderful job. And in my elementary age years, I had teachers that really encouraged not just me, but all students to read. And, and that was represented in those certificates because those certificates um, reminded me that it wasn't just like a once during your six year event, it was annually uh, that you could work to get that certificate. And so thinking more about it, I started thinking about like, okay, how did I earn these certificates? And I can't quite remember how you got a certificate, but the one thing I remember vividly that the school really encouraged and the teachers really did a wonderful job doing was um, not only awarding us to read, but giving us opportunities to read outside of the library and outside of this uh, school. And so I, I thought about, uh, about these um, book purchasing clubs that the school and the school district, I'm assuming, um, participated in. And, and I remember as a kid, like, I think we got them like on Fridays, like every other week we would get like these little eight, eight and a half by 11 sheets that were sort of like a catalog. And I, I don't remember the company, but I remember getting those um, catalogs and in excitement going, oh, you know, what new book titles are there that I haven't read yet? And, and the teachers would be like, you know, get your orders in and, and, you know, we'll get the orders in so you can get your books. The one thing I remember, and this is important for my school because uh, my school to this day is surrounded by a blue collar working class neighborhood. I, I, I don't, I know, I know as a kid, I, I didn't really reflect on this, but as an adult, I now know why those um, book clubs were so important for the teachers, especially. Because I remember these books were like very reasonable. Like we're talking like maybe a quarter. And and there were paperback books, little paperback books. Um, Sometimes some of the titles were like 10 cents, 25 cents, 50 cents. And if you were really, you know, rich, quote unquote, you could spend a dollar on a series or whatever. And and I just remembered like when, when I wanted to order these books, I would like literally at, at my desk, I would circle like, ooh, I want to tell my mom and dad I want this and this. And I remember I would take it to them and they would order them. Like it was within their, their pay range yeah. or their spending range uh, for them to buy me these books. And I would like order like five, four, four of them. And so I think that 
that that book club um, helped a working class neighborhood to afford, um, you know, classic children's novels and and the books that we all now know. Like I remember Clifford the Big Red Dog, I believe, was a series of them. Uh, Beverly Clearly, uh, Cleary, the mm-hmm. uh, you know Ramona. I think the characters Ramona and, and whatever. Like all yeah. of these classic book series were part of that. And I read some of those. Um, do you remember, because you said that you were into sci-fi as a teenager, do you remember reading like in elementary school precursor sci-fi types of books or or anything like that? Well, I remember those books also had, I guess you would call it like a nonfiction section. Like, you know, there was books on nature and things like that. Science, yeah. Science. Um, And so at that time, you know, again, we're talking about the mid 70s to the 80s. We're sort of in this period where space development was still pretty big. And I remember, now now that I'm thinking about it, I remember like in third or fourth grade, my my city where I resided in the school literally is next to DFW Airport. And at that time, the Concord was taking off from DFW. And I remember as a kid, the teachers would actually um, make us take a break from class to go outside to hear and to see the Concord take off from the airport. At that hmm. time, we could see the planes take off. And as a kid interested in science and stuff, I, I would be like, ooh, this is the closest thing to a rocket launching. And, and, and it's funny that I just now remembered this, but yeah, we would go out, it's almost like a little recess when the Concorde was making initial flights from Dallas. And we would stay outside long enough to hear the sonic boom. And once we heard the boom, the teachers would be like, okay, you know, now we can go back in. And so, yeah, I, at that time, I was like, okay, I need to find books about the Concorde or airplane travel or anything like that. And so my love of science, yeah, could have started with those book clubs because, you know, I read the, you know, the children's novels, but in the section where there were titles about science, I would be like, ooh, well, I want to learn more about that. And, and weather, especially, oh gosh, weather, any, any books about tornadoes, picture books about tornadoes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would grab those up like, you know, immediately. And so, and, yeah, um, that was something that, um, I think that book club really made an impact in my future scholar self. You know, I'm really intrigued that I don't think we've ever talked about this in all the years of our relationship, but um, our friendship, but I'm really intrigued by this. I was fascinated with things like earthquakes and volcanoes. And whenever those like little scholastic book club things would come around our school, I would always want to buy these books about volcanoes and earthquakes and just geologic stuff. Of course, in college, I took geology and I hated it. Um, because like you, (laughs) Yeah, terribly yeah. Diff- It's much more terribly difficult than than people think. I, I'm sort of curious about, you know, these certificates that you saved. Mm-hmm. I'm just interested in why do you think you saved them for all these years? 
and it's just serendipitous that you happen to find them within the last couple of weeks. Yeah, a week, actually a week, you know, before this uh, podcast recording, they popped up, literally popped up when I was cleaning my garage. I say, well, let me begin with my parents. My parents saved them because they really encouraged schooling and education for all of their children. Mm-hmm. And, and when we got these certificates, especially elementary school certificates, um, they knew not to throw them away because these were gonna be uh, mementos to remind us that even at that early age, we loved learning. We loved school. And for me, in particular for me, you can ask my brothers and sisters, for me, I was the bookworm. And um, so my parents saved those certificates to remind who we are as kids, their children, uh, specifically our our, um, student identities at that time. I was the curious, sort of quiet bookworm in the family. my middle brother was sort of the, uh, you know, as all middle brothers, sorry, Philip, but yeah, he was a little mischievous, but he was also into math, like math big time. Hmm. And, and my brother Thomas was, he was, I think he always wanted to be a teacher. He was just the, uh, the one who focused on relationships. I mean, Thomas was the, um, <clears throat> everybody loved Thomas and vice versa. And um, Thomas is your brother. Thomas is your brother, who's the teacher now, right? Yes, he still teaches. And he's fact, still a he teacher. Yeah, at our high school that we went to. Yeah, uh, the Montalongos still have connections to the schools they that educated them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I think that my parents saved my certificates because um, it reminded it reminds me that I love to read, and books are always been part of my life. In fact, one of those certificates. Even the teacher, I think, just was amazed that of the amount of reading that I did at that age. And I think it was the fourth grade certificate because on the back, um, it has 47 books. Like at that time, I guess that school year, I read 47 books. And I know those books came attached to that um, book catalog that I remember. Um, And so I, I saw it's. I saw those certificates and then I did a little research myself because I never noticed the border of that certificate. Oh, and, yeah. and on the border of that certificate, um, there are names. And, and so mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me find out what these names are. And so when I did my own research now as a 52-year-old adult, I found out that these are children like classical or classic children writers. Um, that I never heard of, to be quite honest, even at this adult age. But for a second grader to to be exposed to these writers um, through a certificate, I mean, it's pretty amazing that my school and my school district uh, did that. Now, I don't know if the Texas Readers Club was a statewide initiative, but um, obviously, in our school district, it was important because it was something you could get from, I'm assuming, first grade all the way to sixth grade because I kept my sixth grade certificate. And so I, I identified now to those certificates as 
as a reminder that, hey, you've always loved reading during this quarantine, and maybe it's serendipitous or coincidental or whatever, but I think those certificates are, are spoke to me when I found them in the garage because it's like um, telling me, you know, you started reading now for pleasure. Don't give that up once we come out of this COVID crisis. Well, yeah, I, you know, one thing I was just thinking about when I even read your little paragraph about the, that you sent me about the certificates was just this idea that, you know, you should find a way at some point to like give those to some sort of archive or something, because I think so much of that stuff gets thrown away when you know, throughout our lives, because we think it's not important. I tend to hold on to lots of that kind of crap. I've got boxes and boxes of stuff that is like certificates and, you know, memento types of things because I think they're really important. And I, I just love that you still have these children's book certificates. I think it's amazing. Honestly. Yeah. I think it is amazing and important. Like you said, because I like how you're using the word archive um, for yeah. you because I think, for those that are listening that are parents of young kids, especially during this time, uh, we have to keep those items that are directly connected to schools and to your learning and education, because as we're talking about right now, uh, the memory, your memory is such a interesting and mysterious thing. Mm -hmm. And when I open the box, and found certificates. And again, the reading club certificates were just one of several certificates in that box. Uh, you know, I just, a moment of just excitement and pure joy just came over me because I'm like, holy crap, look at me, second grade, you know, I earned a certificate and then, um, you know, 47 books being read. Um, that was a reminder to me that I, um, am a person who enjoys learning, even to this day. I mean, that's my profession. And when you have those keepsakes, uh, you you won't know, like I said, the joy and the the nice reminders that your kids will have, you know, fifty years down the line, as well, I experienced. Well, and another thing is that you know, we started this conversation out with you talking about the joy of reading and the fact that when you were telling the story about, well, I thought about, you know, maybe I'm going to choose these books from college that were really impactful, or maybe I'm going to choose these books, you know, or I read for work, right? And work reading is not necessarily always enjoyable. Um, so how have you reconnected with this, with the joy of reading during this time? Why, like, how do you think about reading as a joyful activity? Well, during this time, and again, we're talking about quarantine slash COVID time, uh, it has paused the busy rushed life that I live um, before March and, and the, 
pandemic happened. And so what I tried to do during this time to kind of just keep, not only <laughs> to keep sane, but just to um, keep that optimistic viewpoint alive is to start looking at activities that pull me away from technology, um, activities that pull me away from the headlines, whether those headlines are good or bad. It's just, you know, you have to take a break from the information until, so it doesn't overload you. Mm -hmm. And, and I found that like picking up a book, not an ebook, but an actual book with paper and a cover, uh, to be somewhat soothing and almost therapeutic. And when I, when I read, um, I try to find a space that gives me some peace, um, almost sort of meditative. And so everything just starts building up to where the, the act of reading is giving me some comfort. And, and I think when I started reading a book that wasn't work-related, I started feeling that. And I was like, you know, this is really awesome. I, I like reading outside on the deck at night um, when the weather was cooler. And when I was reading, I was like paying attention to the birds and then the squirrels on the trees. Mm. And so it just, it just got me like in a, in a space that was very comforting. And then the more I started, when I finished the book, I was like, okay, well, what book am I going to pick up that again, isn't work related, but um, will allow me to feel what I felt in that previous book that I just finished. And, and then it, it started just going beyond just peaceful. It, it made me sort of look at the world differently. And, and so I feel like having that pause was, was really good uh, because it is reminding me again, going back to a child is reminding me of, why I love to read at that at that time and I need to pick that up again because you know life as a kid for me personally it was there was joy but there was a lot of pain um, and so it's sort of like now <laughs> there's there's a lot of pain the world's suffering but there's joy to be found too and I see the bridge between childhood and now is is this for me personally, this thing that I loved, which was a book and finding time to read. So you find that reading is, it's not just joyful, it's contemplative. It's yes. connective. Yes, and I know we're going to talk about one specific title, but a lot of other books that I've been reading is is directly connected to spirituality and and. And I intentionally and purposefully picked those titles to allow me that contemplative thinking that I need during this time. Because as, as a scholar, as a faculty member, um, as someone who teaches students, you're always thinking, you know, there's always questions going in your head and you're always asking possible research questions. You know, why is this happening? Why is this happening? 
um, for me personally, I want to pick up a book during this time to, to not really get me thinking about what's going to be my next, my next research project. I kind of just want to pick up a book that just allows me to ask and to reflect on some deep life questions. And so I've been picking up books uh, written by uh, monks, um, St. Benedict, Benedictine philosophies to be quite specific, um, to allow me to allow a book to ask me questions where I can, you know, pause and close the book and to ask myself, okay, well, um, you know, why don't I reflect on nature as often as I should, for example? And, and again, go back to the squirrels and the <laughs> birds chirping. Um, you know, I start to realize like, oh, oh crap, you know, I'm surrounded by this stuff. Why didn't I notice it to begin with? And so, yeah, I, I have picked up titles that allow me that chance to really deeply reflect on uh, humanity, life, where we're at. And hopefully that will help me personally uh, once we get in the post-COVID world to, to, you know, do things a little bit differently and to look at the world differently. So you tried to, or you said that part of this book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, reminds you of some of this spiritual reading that you're doing. I'm yeah. <laughs> intrigued how you made these connections. Um, oh, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Did you have a specific question or you just... No, I just, I just want to hear you talk about it because like this is part of the rhizomatic experience, right? Yeah. Is that how... And I know that, you know, we're not connecting these two books, but clearly for you, there's some connection between this book and these other books that you've been reading on spirituality, contemplation paying attention to connections. So I just want to hear you talk about how you were making those connections as you read yeah. this book or reread this book as an adult. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, I, I'm using this book. I, 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 at the beginning, I went into this book title thinking about my first book, real book, quote unquote, that I read as a child and, and starting that history that you asked at the beginning. But then I started thinking about this title through my adult lens and, and my current readings about spirituality, St. Benedict, the rural monastic culture, and monks, and all this other stuff. And when reading it, I was, I was like, I was reading the book, this child's novel, and as an adult, I was like, holy crap, you know, this could be something deeper than what it is. And for example, um, there's a part in the book where Charlie gets a chocolate bar and I believe it's his birthday. And he, with the hope of finding a golden ticket, it's not there, but he has a chocolate bar and he knows the whole family is starving, literally starving. Yeah. And so Charlie doesn't eat the candy bar, even though his parents and his grandparents are saying, no, Charlie, eat it. It's yours. He's like, no, I want to share it. And he literally breaks off pieces of the chocolate and, and says, 
I want you to enjoy it too. When I read that part, um, you know, I'm Catholic and the books I'm reading is St. Benedict is, you know, rooted in the Catholic faith. I read that. And I was like, are we having like a, like a last supper moment here? Um, where, Oh, okay. In, in, Interesting. My notes, in my notes, I wrote, Charlie is almost becoming a saint right at this moment. And in fact, in my notes, I wrote, he's becoming a boy saint where in his family, literally he is giving pieces. He's making an offering and he is passing the last piece of joy, I guess, or I don't know the last piece of joy. He's, 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 he's not being, um, he's not being selfish. And in fact, um, he's being very, um, aware of humanity at that time and that this isn't just uh, this isn't just for me it's my you know I know it's my birthday it's a special occasion and stuff but I have people who love me all around me and and they should share in this joyful moment as well we didn't get to go to ticket I mean that would have been fantastic but you know let's let me share a bit of me with my family and and yeah when I was in, in the quarantine, I've been reading, you know, all this spirituality stuff. And, and when I read that, I was like, I could, I can place this moment of the book in sort of a spirituality slash religious sort of uh, lens and, and, and really place this character, Charlie, this young boy character as almost uh, saintly. It, through the act of giving out a piece of chocolate, which to me, you know, being a uh, someone who's been raised by the Catholic Roman Catholic faith, all his life, I was like, oh my God, he's like giving communion out when you think about it. Okay, that's like such a fascinating reading of that little segment of the text. I, of course, read that segment of the text through. <laughs> uh, well, I think the thing that I was just struck by in the front part of the book, Rick, was the way that Dahl portrays this fam. I want to talk about the family and I want to talk about the extreme poverty that these people are living in. I mean, they are poor, poor. And this also gets into all the stuff about the way that it's portrayed in the movie and how do you separate out the, um, the movie portrayal from your reading. But there's a particular chapter where the father, Mr. Bucket, loses his job at the toothpaste factory and he's, he, he becomes a snow shoveler. Mm-hmm. And they literally are starving to death. And they have this whole terrible scene of Charlie losing all this weight. And there's, there's a terrible line about, I mean, I wrote it down. It's kind of, I think, towards the, um, where is it on my notes here? There's this terrible line about Charlie. Oh, yeah, it's on page 40 of the book. You know, he began to make little changes here and there in some of the things that he did so as to save his strength mm-hmm. to prevent exhaustion. Yeah. I just found it, like, terrible. 
honestly, what these people is. were going through. In fact, the, the title of that chapter, and I wrote in my notes on page 37, the chapter 10 the, is titled, The Family Begins to Starve. And so you have yeah. to read nine chapters previous to that to follow the, the perils of this very impoverished family. And, and that when you reach chapter 10, it's, it's almost like a breaking point where, you know, Charlie's dad is a toothpaste cap screwer, screwer. <laughs> you know, you can't think of a more tedious job than putting toothpaste caps, you know, from nine to five, and he loses that job. Um, and so in that chapter, I, I thought that chapter was so sad. Like even the, even the illustration on page 41, is is so sad and i'll tell you why that illustration is so sad because it, it's described in the book you know charlie is starving and like you said he's losing weight he's pretty much skin and bones yeah um he's walking through a street he's cold he probably doesn't have a good coat there's snow and i, and I picture like slushy ugly gray snow yeah terrible you know, not the pretty white fluffy snow but charlie is like you know, trying to just figure out like, you know, where's the next piece of food coming? And what's striking in that chapter is he's walking through the street and adults don't even recognize him. And it made me think about like, in our current times, what would we do? I mean, I know when we see homeless adults um, in urban areas that we tend to pass them by. We don't we don't want to hear their story. Uh, but if it's a child, will we do the same passing by? Mm. Because in this chapter, the adults, even the illustration, you know, poor Charlie's bent over looking at the slush. And in the illustration, I'm assuming there's two adults. One, if you notice, one, I'm assuming with a bag of groceries, passing by and ignoring Charlie. Um, you know, doll if you read Dahl's novels, they're not, you know, they're very dark. <laughs> and, and this, this book really stuck out for me, even as a kid, you know, reflecting back as a kid, um, reminding me that the world is, is a very, can be a very cruel place, especially for children. And reading this as a child, um, I, I, I connected to this book because while we weren't starving, um, you know, we weren't like upper middle class or anything. And, and, you know, there was times where even in my family, food was, you know, rationed off because I came from a large family, but I connected to, to Charlie because I, I knew as a kid that uh, the world can be cruel for us. And, and when adults don't see that, uh, you know, it becomes even crueler. And, you know, going back to elementary school, that's why I love school. Um, because people other, adults other than my family members, um, and, and people who were non-family members, because, you know, I come from a very large extended family where my cousins, we all love each other. Um, but people who are non-family members, the teachers, um, 
knew my family, they knew my brothers, and, and they just loved the family, and I just loved the teachers. And, and so school was like this safe spot where no matter sort of the trials and tribulations I had as a kid, um, I knew in that space there were some adults that cared for me. And when I read this book, it just reminded me that, damn, you know, poor Charlie, like, <laughs> like cabbage soup, like, I don't like cabbage and I don't like soup. <laughs> so to me as a kid, even as an adult, reading that you had to eat that day by day, I was just like, God, that's awful. Yeah, I was sort of struck by, there's, there's a picture like a couple of pages before the one that you just talked about it's on oh it's just two pages before on page 39 and i think this is why i i read this book as a a sort i don't i don't know if it's an indictment or if it's just a questioning but what I find so sad about it is not just that they're starving, not just that this family is in this rickety house. Um, the, the way that Dahl describes like the cold in the winter, for example, like these drafts, you know, there's no insulation, it's cold, you can't like whatever. And I just feel like in a way it's, it, it it's not only like, what does our society do, but it's like, really, is the only way that you're going to survive in this structure through luck? And that's the question that I kept thinking of is I was like, oh, it's just luck that he finds a, a dollar in the sludge on the, on the road. It's just dumb luck that he finds this golden ticket, right? That he buys the second candy bar yeah. after he finds the dollar. And I don't know, like, what does that say about our society that you have to survive to a certain extent on luck? Like you're not, society is not going to take care of you. You're, you know, it's either luck or, and then it gets into the whole thing about like children's morality, which I think we really have to talk about also, because like the whole book is about like, like you said, right? Charlie is painted as this kind of moral figure. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. There's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, isn't that what is fascinating about for me reading this book um, and watching the movie, isn't that fascinating how as adults, we, we, we put on our adult lens and we start making sort of the societal critiques about, uh, this and that. Um, but as a child, like, I'm trying, you know, I was trying to get into my childlike perspective on how do I, t you know, how do I read these issues and how do I view these issues as like a third grader, for example? Um, why didn't the chapter, you know, Charlie's family begins, starts to starve? Like, why didn't that startle me? <laughs> and And so, you know, you're asking, like, everything is possibly by luck and is that the message is just sort of stick it out and possibly luck will kind of come your way i mean in a way that is 
one message and you know you make mention of the illustration in the page you know on the illustration i don't know like how big these wonka factory gates are supposed to be but in the illustration it's not god it looks like they're like 40 feet tall and so this idea of you know remember charlie's village is literally surrounding this factory the factory is part of the village and the life to the point where you smell chocolate all the time uh, right and i mean there's that whole thing about like this it it is fascinating i because because what a couple chapters later or someplace in the book you get to this point where you realize that the town itself must have been employed by the factory. And, you know, Mr. Wonka at some point fires all of the employees because uh, he's concerned about spies. And so, and then he locks it and nobody comes in, nobody goes out, like this whole, you know, thing that Grandpa Joe talks about, you know, oh, nobody goes in, nobody comes out type of thing and it's been 10 years and I don't know I just I think about so y- you can't help but read it through you know like dying rust belt towns you know this corporation is in the is in the town this giant factory but nobody in the town works for the factory because I, it's it's really a um you know it's a children's book but you wonder what is it teaching children about the way that capitalism works? What is it, what is it teaching children about the way that you survive yeah. when the factory fires everybody and you just survive by, you know, dumb luck or, or, is, or if you're a good person, maybe you're going to inherit the factory type of thing, you know, which is what happens at the end. So let, I, me, I, let me challenge with a question or is yeah. the factory symbolic of something? Like is, you know, in our reading as adults, you know, we're taking it literally that, you know, there is a factory, you know, and it did this and that. But again, this is where sort of as an adult and just coincidentally reading about spirituality and things like that. And I don't know, I haven't read anything like doll's perspectives and, and, you know, is there deep symbolism and and writing this children's novel that is considered a classic now. Um, So in my spirituality readings, I started looking at, okay, well, yeah, there's, there's a factory and the factory, you know, why is this factory not helping the village and pretty much punishing the village? And to the point where, you know, I'm going to spread chocolate, um, you know, sense around your neighborhood to remind you that we're here so yeah there's that part but then like in my spirituality sort of sense it's almost like um it's almost like how can i describe this sort of like a spiritual challenge like when we're thinking about spiritual spirituality spiritual development and stuff uh there is something that you're trying to reach for and that something is sort of like a nirvana type outcome where you you get peace there's heaven for example uh, there's eternal living and you know 
things, you know, spirituality and, and especially organized religions have this endpoint that you're trying to reach that is like uh, the ultimate. But you can't get there like from point A to point B. It's a journey. And in that journey, it is, it is tough. Things get thrown their way. And, and I would even say a non-organized religious type spirituality, if you're wanting to achieve something that is going to bring you peace and calmness, uh, there are trials along the way that you encounter. And so when I was reading this, I was like, again, through a spirituality lens, I was like, okay, well, yeah, this factory is like so wonderful that people just want to buy truckloads of chocolate bars to get access inside this space. Well, take away the factory, take away the chocolate bars. You can't get to heaven by just saying, you know, 15 million Hail Marys, right? There is, you have to do something that in, in the Roman Catholic faith, at least, that is more than just um, saying prayer. Um, you know, there's, there's psalms and there's readings that remind you of this in that particular faith. But I, you know, in my limited knowledge of other faiths and limited knowledge in, in spirituality, the same message is there is that you don't automatically get to that nirvana-like place by just, you know, breaking out your ATM card and saying, you know, give it to me. And so the factory is sort of like that. It's like, hey, hey, villagers, you know, I, I place my factory in the middle of your village where there's fantastic, impossible chocolates. <laughs> and we'll talk about that, hopefully, about all the products Wonka makes. Um, oh, yeah. That are so, like, out there and impossible, but yet he does it. He's able to do it. But the village um, and humans, humans um, um, did Mr. Wonka wrong. And, and other candy makers sent spies into that, dare I say, sacred place. And so much like in all spirituality sort of teachings, um, that place said, okay, I'm going to now test you. And, and that's why I find fascinating reading this book as an adult, because all of this sort of like, I don't know what you call it, is that adult learning or me researching spirituality or whatever. I just kind of look at this through that lens and, and think about like what messages are giving to kids. Because again, I tried to reflect back as me as a child. I, the message I got, especially being a, a young person of color in a predominantly white working class neighborhood where you heard messages of your difference is that, okay, I know there's something out there that is beyond this place that I'm living at that oftentimes gives me some trials and tri tribulations, uh, racism. Um, but I still believe in that space. And so I have to do something to get there. And those examples of like, for example, racism, I did goodness, at least for me personally, I, I chose goodness. And so that's where I connected as a child to this book. Um, not necessarily with 
what we see as adults in terms of capitalism, but just when you are a good person, what does that bring to you? And at least for Charlie, just by being a good soul, um, he reached the Holy Grail. He reached Nirvana. And, and no questions asked, to be quite honest. Wonka literally gives him the keys, the glass elevator, and said, it's yours, you know, and bring your family to it. Well, this is why I, first of all, thank you for that reading, because I don't have, I did not read it through that lens. And this is why that's okay. I love, no, that's, but that's why I love doing this project that I'm doing because, and that we're all doing collectively, because it's like, yeah, now as you're talking, I'm thinking about, okay, maybe this maybe this is kind of like a, a fable or a story about, I mean, of course it's about morality and goodness and, and, but the spiritual reading that you were talking about just makes me think like, you know, yeah, the factory inside, once you get to the chapters with all the stuff inside, it really is painted as this like magical place um, you know, we'll talk about all of that. And another thing in the book that I just found fascinating was that, of course, there are these like, I can't think of the word, Rick, help me think of the word that I, the word I'm thinking of is enticements. I'm thinking about the four children who don't make it to the end. Mm -hmm. What are, what are, what's another word for enticements, but from a religious standpoint? Um, Do you understand what I'm asking? Like, yeah, it's uh, not roadblocks. It's like these things that I don't know why. Temptations. What's that? Temptations. temptations. Yes, temptations. Mm -hmm. So there are these temptations that these children are presented with, and four of them are not able to, you know, prevent themselves from being tempted. There, there's the whole thing about greed. I mean, greed is a huge theme of the book, mm -hmm. you know, especially like um, Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt, and you know, she wants everyone to buy everything for her, and just like she doesn't. I mean, all this kind of stuff. I, I was quite fascinated by the fact that Charlie himself did not, um, in the book version he actually really doesn't get into any trouble. In the uh, movie version, there's the bubbly, you know, th at least Busy the 1970s. Yeah, the, yeah. Where they drink it and, and somehow, I can't remember how that gets resolved in the film, but, um, but that doesn't happen in the book. No. So I, I'm curious why they did that in the movie. I don't know. I just think it's a fascinating reading that it might be religious. So do you see Willy Wonka as a deity figure? I, well, again, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see and to learn how children's literature, especially, is almost as deep as sort of your Pulitzer Prize winning novels. Uh, children's literature is, is, is something that I think we should all either return back to or 
or to read um, in our to put on our bookshelves because uh, you know going back to the Texas readers uh, certificates from my elementary schools I haven't read any of the books that the authors like Sperry Armstrong um, I had the names written somewhere in my notes but like I remember Perry Armstrong and some others I, I don't know what they wrote about but in children's novels um, there are deeper messages that we have to look at and everyone can interpret them differently and at this moment of time to be that I'm reading a lot of spirituality things and and putting that lens on as I read a children's novel is just a fascinating exercise because it's like I don't I didn't even see Charlie in this way, even in the movie. And now it's like, holy, holy crap. Like this is, this is sort of like some intense, deep stuff. Um, one of the things that I have my page open that made me think about that immediately once I opened the book was on page three, uh, when they're introducing the Bucket family, um, Charlie on page three is all by himself. Like the illustration, you know, he's got a smile on his face. And it's quite simply, it says, this is Charlie. How do you do and how do you do and how do you do again? He is pleased to meet you. In my notes, I was like, how sweet, you know, how sweet is this kid? And then when at the same time I was reading this book, I was reading a, one book in my spirituality collection on St. Benedict. And it just happens to be uh, that in that book I was reading, it was talking about how um, Benedictine monks, you know, one of their um, order tasks is hospitality and things like that. And the book mm -hmm. I was reading coincidentally at that time or connect um, at the same time, there was a section where the writer was talking about how Benedictine monks um, really do a lot of service especially with hospitality and things like retreats and things like that. And this author reflected on that particular task that Benedictine monks do. And she equated it to, a, I believe, if I remember correctly, a church sign. And at that time, the church sign said, like, welcome in this space. You're our stranger, but what you're a stranger, but once. And so when Wait, I read what is that, that you are a stranger, but what? A stranger but once you're you're a stranger when we meet but after that we're we're family we're friends and things like that once as in w-a-n-t-s no once o-n-c-e oh once you're a stranger but once so think about that phrase a stranger but once so once being the first time after that, you're no longer a stranger. Hmm. And so that is a, a Benedictine philosophy that when I read that book, I was like, okay, I need to do that more in my own life where um, if I follow the Benedictine teachings, when I meet a stranger, we don't know each other, but after that first initial meeting, I know you or I want to get to know you. You're, you are a stranger, but once. And again, I hope I'm articulating that right. 
No, no, no. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. So, so go back to this page. I wrote in my notes and I wrote that quote because Charlie, in his introduction, right from the get-go, is, is sort of equating that, at least the way I'm interpreting it. You know, Charlie's pleased to meet you. After, you know, once you turn the page, Charlie knows you. Um, he's pleased to meet you. He's really, it, it's sort of very, I could be correct, incorrect on this because again, I'm just, I'm a student of um, Benedictine teachings, but in a way it's almost like what St. Benedict is wanting um, his monks to do when you read the rule, which is as, as brothers in a monastery, when you welcome a new brother, uh, you are a stranger, but once. And after that, you are my brother. Like literally in a monastery, you are. <laughs> you're, you're family now. And, and so when I read that, and again, I'm an adult. I may be going way, way, way deep into like page three of this children's novel. But it was fascinating to, to me to apply that lens in reading that book because Charlie is, is already sort of like a Saint a Benedictine monk. Um, I am your brother. I'm pleased to meet you. And, and it's sad that, you know, after that page, like literally when you turn the page, uh, you see the bucket household and it's, and it's a shack according to the illustration. So Charlie's pleased to meet you despite his impoverished setting, uh, his starvation, uh, and living in a city that, from when when you read the book, it's pretty much urban blight. You know, there's a factory that is closed or doesn't let people in, and it's cold, it's slushy. But Charlie's pleased to meet you. You know, how do you do? How do you do? And how do you do? I just I just was fascinated when I read this as an adult that you know there's there's I don't know did all have like a religious thing to this book and to the series well i i don't know i mean i i read some little snippets about doll and some of the ways that he's been interpreted and yeah the problematics associated with some of the ways that he's wrote things but i'm glad you pointed this page out because i didn't really pay attention to this page but there's something else going on here and that is there's a, there's a structural change in the way the story is told. This line that you read, how do you do and how do you do and how do you do again, seems to me, even though it's not in quotations, it seems to me like Charlie is talking to us. And of course, the narrative structure of the book is that the story is not told. Charlie is not the narrator. It's not first person narration. Yeah. It's third person narration. So the only reason I'm thinking about this is because I know you haven't listened to episode two, but Alan and I spent a lot of time talking about how writers construct stories from a narrative perspective. And this page, it seems to me, just this middle line is like this one time when it feels like Charlie is talking to us directly. I wonder why Dahl did that. Yeah, I never, I didn't even notice that, but 
you know, he, previous to that, he's introducing his, Charlie's family. Um, and so why he didn't put that in Charlie's voice is, is interesting. But again, it's, it's sort of this, this strategy that you just assume that Charlie is such a good person, but the, the author's already setting up that Charlie doesn't need to say it to you. He, he knows that he's pleased to meet you. And in his actions of meeting you, you know, he's, he's asking like, yeah, how are you doing? How'd you do? How do you do? And again, that's, that's where I go back to sort of like Charlie becoming this saint-like figure to where his, his actions don't need to be observed. You just know that this kid is a good kid who, who goes through these tests and, and of suffering of, you know, deep, the, the hardest test to encounter as a child um, living in our society. But he's such a good person. He's just like, you know, I, I'll get through this. Well, in fact, I mean, it's not just that you're, you're talking about him as a saint-like figure, but the page before the, page before the book starts, uh, and it's, it's, I think we have the same version. Um, yes. It's before the cover page. Um, I was fascinated by this. Uh, there are five children in this book, right? And it, so it, it read to me almost like, this read to me as like, oh, this is like a play, right? It's like a mm-hmm. drama where, you know, here are the five characters that you need to know about. And I think you wrote, a, I think you said something about this in your notes yes. to me that, you know, the, 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 the adults, the parents, they're there, but they're not really, you know, we can talk about that in a minute. But I, he's painted here on this page as he's labeled the hero. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, regardless of how you want to talk about how Dahl is setting these characters up, you know, religious reading, uh, other type of reading, painting him as a hero makes this almost a like mythological tale type of a thing. Mm -hmm. He will be the person who, despite all the, you know, despite all the trials that is put before him, he is going to end up becoming the hero of the story at the end. Yeah. And it's funny that, you know, when you said that, I was thinking again, going back as a child who loved to read and the books I preferred, which was adventure type novels. Um, yeah. In a way, this book is an adventure. It's a journey. And any books, like if you look at like, greek mythology exactly those tragedies you know those those characters go through a journey and on the journey to achieve a quest um they are tempted like the kids (laughs) um that are in the cast of this book and the hero usually is observing the temptation but the hero can go one way or go the other and in most cases, they go the other way because they are good people. Well, and I'm even thinking back to like when I took Greek, myth- Greek and Roman mythology in college. 
I don't remember any of the hero characters being children. No. All the heroes were adults. So you even wonder if he's playing with this idea of, if Dahl is playing with this idea of, you know, oh yeah, children, because of their innocence and their purity, maybe they can be hero-like characters as well. Well, another thing too, when I read, because I have this in my notes too, how the the children in the book, and again, Dahl says there are five children in this book. It's very straightforward. Yes. And everyone hopefully should know the five kids, you know, Augustus Blue, Farouk Gassad, Violet Beauregard, Mike Keevy, and Charlie Bucket. Mm-hmm. And he has these little descriptions underneath each of these children. Mm-hmm. And Augustus, greedy, Veruca, spoiled, Violet, chews gum all day, and Mike TV. And so part of me is like, in a way, they're almost like the seven deadly sins. <laughs> uh, oh, for sure. I mean, all of these children have vices. Yeah. I mean, there's only five, and obviously one of the five is a, is a good virtue to have but the others are just like so horribly described but and again we have to go back as kids like reading reading this say like maybe in the late 70s early eight well yeah probably for me in the late 70s like who hasn't as a kid been gluttonous like getting the chocolate or or food or something like that for me to be quite honest for me it was cheetos like cheetos even to this day cheetos as a kid was my vice Mm -hmm. Uh, i would hoard a big bag of cheetos so yeah i was greedy um we all know maybe even our siblings someone who was spoiled um I didn't. I never really chewed gum, but I remember back then as a kid. Yeah, gum chewing was uh, seen as a horrible um, thing to do, especially in school. Like I, when I was in school, the teacher used to tell you, "Take your gum out, put it behind your ear." Um, well, and, and ju- not to interrupt. Like I want to hear the rest of these, but you know that character in particular. So that's Violet. Yeah. You know, there's a. There's also a gendered reading to that, right? So it's like, it's very unladylike for you to be chewing gum because in that chapter where she's described, you know, it's like she's chomping and she's blah, you know, and so there is like a way that that gets built into the storytelling. There's my dog. We'll have to, you know, edit that out. There's a cat flying over me. You know, it's like great. Everything's great. Um, continue. Coming, so okay. I don't know if you can hear it on your Okay, he's gone. Yeah, and Mike TV. Well, of course, my very favorite pages of the whole book are come at the end. Yeah. Uh, Pages 139 and 140 through 141. Out of all the Oopa Loopa songs, uh, this one in the book, now, 
the book Oompa Loompa songs are a lot different than the movie versions. Oh my gosh, they're so different. Yeah, they're they're poems actually. Um, but yeah, Mike TV's one was my favorite for obvious reasons. Yeah, I love it. It rots the senses in the head. It kills imagination dead. It clogs and clutters up the mind. It makes a child so dull and blind. He can no longer understand a fantasy, a fairyland. His brain becomes as soft as cheese. His powers of thinking rust and freeze. He cannot think he only sees. And of course, on page 140, this is a podcast about reading. We're going to talk about why Dahl says that reading is the best solution to any problems. They used to read. They'd read and read and read and read and then proceed to read some more. Great Scott Gadzooks. One half their lives was reading books. The nursery shelves held books galore. Books cluttered up the nursery floor and in the bedroom okay, by the I bed. Talk, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. Because I underlined this. Notice how the nursery shelves held books galore as kids. Like, right? Am I reading that correctly? Yeah. If, what, you're, if you're a toddler, like, you need to read. You need to read. It starts there. And so I think Dahl's kind of giving like a little reminder to kids that are reading this. It's like, your parents read to you as kids, as babies, you know, don't, don't give that up, basically. Well, and, you know, we have to contextualize the book. And I, I really want to get into some of the, like, the science parts of the book. Yeah. Um, because, you know, this was originally published in 1964 and, you know, there was a lot of, this is, you know, the post-war boom, the post-World War II boom of, you know, America and the world really. And it's kind of the period when everyone started freaking out about, suddenly everyone had a television. There was televisions in every home, you know? Um, So the way that like technological advances were disrupting traditional activities like reading is part of the way that you can read that particular story. And I think about now, like with the advent of, you know, iPhones and iPads and all this other kind of stuff. And we, we, you know, we just go through these periods where we, we freak out that people are going to stop reading. We assign a certain level of morality to reading, honestly. Um, I know I certainly do. So I was just reading this through that particular time frame and being like, well, of course, you know, we're afraid that people are going to stop reading books and they're going to, you know, sit their butt in front of the television all day. And huge swaths of our population do, in fact, do that. But (laughs) I don't know. I like thinking about the way that writers react to that. Mm -hmm. So what about all the science stuff in the book? All the inventions, all the imagination. And that was, that is an area that I loved. And I know as a kid, I loved as a someone who appreciates the movie with Gene Wilder, mm-hmm. I loved. And yeah, uh, sort of science being 
imagination and that um, imagination can create wonderful things. And the thing I love in the book and what I appreciate all doing is how imagination and science working together can create things you know that are not possible. Um, or, or my favorite, let me find the chapter. Um, you know, he creates a candy that I forgot was in the book and it's not in the movie and I wish it was in the movie, but he creates square candies that look round. <laughs> oh, the round. Yes. So when you read the chapter, it's like square candy, square candies that look round and round being the shape. And so when I was reading this, I was like, okay, I don't remember this as my first reading. And it's definitely not in the book, but the movie, and there's really. a, and there's a really cool illustration of the, the square candies that look round. Um, and so, you know, they're good. They go in and they go into this room and, you know, they're like, well, these are candies. They don't look round. Um, they're square. And like Veruca is the one who's like really causing a ruckus. Like, you know, you're lying, something like that. <laughs> but it turns out that they are square, but they look round. And I'm, you know, giving a little bit of the plot away. <laughs> little eyes pop open and they're looking around. And so to me, that was a brilliant example of imagination and science like uh, science has a sense of humor uh, science is imaginative and so yeah you know science objectively it's it's square but when you put a little imagination in it you know we turn we turn a problem or we turn an object into something that you least expect it and so I think we're all familiar with all the Wonka treats, you know, the everlasting gobstoppers and, you know, in the movie, the lickable, tasty wallpaper and stuff. But reading the book again, I was like, I didn't remember the, the square candies that look round, but again, Wonka is a genius and he was able to create a square candy that had eyes that look around. <laughs> oh, the book is, the book is so much more, fabulous in this regard than even the the movie yeah i mean i remember in the movie the lickable wallpaper and i feel like you know this is some of the stuff that in the movie that you know clearly the director took some liberties with switching the story around because like the fizzy lifting drink in the book is just like a room they pass by they don't really even stop in the room of yeah. course in the movie there's like this whole scene with the fizzy lifting drink and they go, you know, they get stuck on the ceiling and all this kind of stuff. Um, but like on the inventions are really fascinating on, on page 120, there's like a whole list of these types of things. You yeah. know, I want to just point this out for people who've never read the book. You know, there's a rock candy mine, 10,000 feet deep, coconut ice skating rinks, strawberry juice water pistols, toffee apple trees for planting out in your garden, exploding candies for your enemies. Little vicious, okay? <laughs> um, but, you know, okay, there it is. Um, mint jujube, mint jujubes for the boy next door. They'll give him green teeth for a month. Cavity filling caramels, no more dentists. 
Wriggle sweets that wriggle delightfully in your tummy after swallowing. Invisible chocolate bars for eating in class. Candy-coated pencils for sucking. Magic head, magic hand fudge. Rainbow drops. There's even in other parts of the book, you know, things that I found really fascinating, like this, this candy that he developed that helps you grow hair back. Yeah. Ice cream that doesn't melt in the heat. Um, it's really, you know, it's, it's wonderful to think about, you can imagine all of these things that would make the world better and, or that would make the world more delightful and you can invent them. You can figure out the science behind it. Even that whole scene where they, where they go into the room where he's like, you know, testing all these things out and he's trying, I I don't know. I just think that part of the book to me is, is really lovely because it is about imagination, but it's also about invention and thinking outside the box and that nothing is impossible. Yeah. In, in the last quote you said, nothing is impossible is sort of a key quote. Um, that Wonka says near the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, his specific products, they're, they're fun. And, and again, they're products that adults would say that's impossible to make. But for children, it would be like, I want that. I, you, you know, I want the, chalk, the ice cream that doesn't melt in the heat. Um, and all the other products you listed. And so Wonka is, is mindful of his audience, there, dare we say, his, his, his consumers. And, and the crazier the product is, the, and the more that children would appreciate it, but adults would question it. And isn't that what science is all about when you think about it? You know, um, you know, we're currently working in the COVID crisis and, and now imagination and science is being questioned and there's too much, I don't know. I mean, we're just sort of in this weird time where um, through a child, um, you know, having that in my imagination is an asset. Um, well, now, and in fact, like, I think, and you pulled this quote out, let me find it here. Um, you pull this quote out. It's near the end of the book where, okay, it's on page 151. You wrote, you said key paragraph. Do you have your notes? Yes. You'll read the quote that you put here. I'm leading my notes in the book, but starting with listen, Mr. Wonka. Mm, on the on the note page, you said it started with so. Oh, hold on a second. The word so. This is when he's giving the char- the chocolate factory to Charlie. I'm sorry, I'm kidding. It's okay. Like, look on page 151. Um, 
Oh, okay. Just so, read okay. this. Just read this middle paragraph that starts with "Listen," Mr. Wonka said. Because so, I think this is like a really important point of yeah. the book. So he's speaking to Charlie. Listen, Mr. Wonka said, I am an old man. I'm much older than you think. I can't go on forever. I've got no children of my own, no family of my own. So who is going to run the factory when I get too old to do it myself? Someone's got to keep it going, if only for the sake of the Oompa Loompas. If only, <clears throat> mind you, there are thousands of clever men who would give anything for the chance to come in and take over for me, but I don't want that sort of person. I want, I don't want a grown-up person at all. A grown-up won't listen to me. He won't learn. He will try to do things his own way and not mine. So I have to find, I have to have a child. I want a good, sensible, loving child, one to whom I can tell all my most precious See candy making secrets while I am still alive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I said that was a key paragraph because, um, again, sort of the innocence of a child and how a child would look at all of these inventions and innovations as something that is precious. Whereas adults would go and see it as a commodity, you know, let me, let me go sell this and patent it and, and sell it to others who want to make their own versions of it. And so I think there's something to be said in that paragraph that I think the author through Wonka is telling kids that, you know, you, you see the world differently than I do. And and I think keep that, you know, I, during that time this book was written, I mean, I'm sure a lot of things were happening in the world. And, you know, Dahl is, is using an adult, although a very eccentric adult, uh, but he's using the voice of an adult to tell a child and to tell his child readers that I don't trust adults, I trust you. And if I give you the factory, I know you're going to keep the secrets. And, and yeah, I've always liked, or I like that paragraph because, um, again, th through sort of that spirituality lens, even as adults, uh, be good and, and good things will come your way. But from a, like, you know, I know we were talking about science and innovation, but from that perspective, um, you know, we, we got to value imagination and, and to cherish it because if we don't, um, others are going to take it away from us. Yeah, I mean, I like it because I think it's this idea of adults lose all of their imagination yeah exactly and and children don't and and even the way that he um well the whole thing about keeping the secrets and this goes into the spy thing is that i kept thinking about you know even again this time period 
lot of scientific discovery going on. This is just a few years after Sputnik, the space race is happening. Uh, there's just so there was a lot of stuff that happened post World War II in the early fifties where scientific secrets were stolen. You know, I'm thinking of like, um, what are their names? The Ethelbergs um, who get, um, you know, executed for selling secrets to the Russians. Um, yeah. All of this kind of stuff. I, I think that these stories, yeah, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 the book itself is obviously saying something about like, oh, when we discover something, we need to keep it secret type of thing. But, but more about the imagination and like, don't lose your imagination when you become an adult. You become boring. Yeah. And even, even reading currently as an adult, this book, um, any, any description about all the different types of candies just still brings like, mm -hmm. um, a sense of wonderment, um, and asking yourself, it's like, well, can, can that still be made? <laughs> I'll be fascinated to, you know, to eat, a, or to chew a piece of gum that comes in a five course meal, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. That obviously a child, Violet Beauregard, um, got tempted because she's a gum chewer. Um, you know, I, I think we can go on another conversation how, you know, gum can help uh, feed families like Charlie, but Violet, she was tempted and, and she took a piece that wasn't tested completely and she suffered the consequences. And those in the movie, those that remember in the movie, um, you know, she blew up into a blueberry. Um, the thing I liked about the consequences of the horrible children uh, is that, again, Dahl's books are very macabre. You know, they're very dark in, in terms of how children receive their consequences and adults even. Um, but they're hilarious. I mean, there was times where I was reading this book and I was just like, um, you know, like the one I, I just cracked up when I read it was Veruca Saw. Uh, not only was she uh, hurt, she was her consequence. She had to face, you know, these um, super intelligent squirrels. <laughs> and she was attacked by, literally, she was attacked by an army of squirrels. Uh, but she was sent down a trash chute of bad nuts for bad nuts. And... And Wonka is just like so nonchalant. She's like, oh, well, you know, telling Veruca Salt's dad. Yeah, she's down the trash chute. You know, that chute goes into a furnace. And oh, goodness gracious, I hope the furnace isn't lit today. And of course, Veruca Salt's dad is like freaking out. But just how like you're reading this and it's like you're laughing at the, the violent end <laughs> possibly of a child. But you're laughing because it's like, well, she deserved it. Well, there's a certain viciousness about the way that he writes Veruca Salt in particular. I think there's another line in the book that I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, when, when they're all coming into the factory and he, uh, Willy Wonka meets Veruca and I think he says, oh, so lovely to meet you. I always thought Veruca was a wart. Yeah. Or something, right? And, a wart. 
a type of wart. And I was like, oh my goodness. And there, even in, in the poems throughout the book, like you said, the Oompa Loompa songs are very different in the movie than they are in the book. And in these poems, they're, I mean, they're actually quite vicious about these kids, you know, things, saying things like, you know, that this kid is so gluttonous that he would never bring happiness to another person. Uh, there are just all these all these lines in the poems that I was like, this is really quite um, direct, yeah. <laughs> you know, that doesn't get put into the movie version because the movie well, versions, they again too, you know, the songs and the children themselves are lessons and they are. And again, if we don't take this book in its literal sense and just maybe look at it through its messages and, the symbols that these characters represent, um, it's a lesson. So at that time, I guess the author's like, listen, if you are chewing gum and you're chewing it at school in particular, well, guess what? You're going to turn into a big blueberry. And the only way you're going to get cured, quote unquote, is we're going to juice, de-juice you. And it may come out good. It may not. You may, you may die, basically, is what the book is saying. And, and so, yeah, all of these children are, all of the children that suffer consequences um, are written in a very dark, humorous way, but it's all setting up to why Charlie is, is the hero, as the, that intro page mentioned. And that if you don't do this, guess what? You know, you're going to achieve good things in your life. Yeah, Conway's barking. He's a little upset right now. No. Poor thing. Um, oh, here's my voice. Well, he can't because I'm, I'm I've oh. got my headphones in. It's that there's someone outside, so he'll be okay. I do want to talk about the Oompa Loompas. Yes. Um. What do you think about these characters in the story? The way again, that they're written in the book. Yeah, again, there's the child's view and then there's the adult view. And let me start with the adult view first. Um, and so, yeah, reading, reading this is um, through the adult lens. And I haven't read the book, you know, since maybe before college was probably the last time I picked up the book. Um, yeah, it's, it can be very problematic in terms of like, okay, who, who, what are the Oompa Loompas representing in terms of looking at society through today's lens, especially workers at a factory and knowing that they came from some sort of <laughs> indigenous culture. And so the list goes on and on. And, and so, yeah, uh, again, this is where if I would do further analysis, I would be like, well, you know, I know dog comes with some uh, challenges and some critiques of like his background and, and anti-Semitism and things like that. And so, you know, was that his intent? And I know you provided another story where Dahl wanted the character of Charlie to actually be a young, a little black 
you know, young black boy. And so, you know, how, yeah, where, where was he at in, at that time with his character developments and why the Oompa Loompas are sort of like in the world that's very realistic that somewhere in this world is Oompa Loompa land uh, that we have to save. And, and, you know, Wonka is the savior to this um, group. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I even read that in an earlier version of the book, not only, you know, Dahl's wife said that he originally wanted to paint Charlie as a, as a little black boy. Um, you know, we could talk about that. What I'm more interested in was that I think in that same story, it said that originally, in the original version, um, the Oompa Loompas were actually sort of African pygmies. And this... You know, the language in the book about the Oompa Loompas is quite disturbing from, we can read it multiple ways. You know, you can read it as slavery, you can read it as colonization, you can read it from a sort of docile worker perspective. You can even read it as child labor because the way that the Oompa Loompas are portrayed in the book is as these sort of childlike, naive characters, right? They're painted as they laugh at everything. They, um, you know, they sing songs, they dance and all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I just... Uh, even the language of like on page 68, you know, uh, Willy Wonka is talking about how he imported the Oompa yeah. Loompas directly from Oompa Land or from Loompa Land um, on page 71. I smuggled them over in large packing cases with holes in them and they yeah. all got here safely. They're wonderful workers. They all speak English now. They love dancing and music. They're always making up songs. I must warn you though that they are rather mysterious or mischievous, I mean. Um, you know, it's it's troubling because it, you know, that's slavery. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's both and, of course, but. Yeah, and, and how, especially in the movie version, how the Oopalumpas are sort of the most beloved characters in the book, but when you, or in the movie. In the movie. But when you read the book, and especially if you're an adult reading the book, and even if you're an adult reading the book to a child, um, you know, yeah, there there come some questions on like, you know, who, what exactly are the Oompa Loompas? And, and even in the factory, they're still sort of uh, quote unquote primitive. You know, they're, you know, Wonka is literally um, building his business success on the backs of the Oompa Loompa labor. So, oh, right. Yeah. He doesn't pay them, right? Like there's yeah. the whole thing about, he feeds you know, them. he pays them through food and yeah. shelter, right? Exactly. And, and they are painted as primitive in the book. This is not in the movies, yeah, they, but in the book, they wear like... Little straw, like... Like little straw, like uh, leaves, dirt, and yeah. they're, they're dirty, and, you know, all... And I was just like, this is... And they weird. don't leave the compound... <laughs> they don't leave the compound. They're uh, just there. 
So it's, it is really a part of the book that you're like, wow. But then again, you can kind of paint the Oompa Loompas as, as they're, they're the ones that keep the factory and the innovation going. Because remember, there's something about them. And again, we could have another talk about a very interesting topic, you know, the Oompa Loompas. But when you think about it, there's something about them. They're, very, they're also very intelligent. I mean, who's in the testing rooms? It's the Oompa Loompas. And, you know, Mike TV is sort of symbolic of the, the rise of technology, at least at that time the book was published, and the dangers of technology. Well, guess what? The Oompa Loompas were in charge of the technology in the TV room, and they were warning Mike TV, like, stay away from this. This is dangerous stuff. But guess what? It was a, you know, it was a mischievous child, not the Oompa Loompas that were, uh, suffered the consequences of that particular testing room. So yeah, they're they're interesting characters, but they're they're portrayed much differently in the book than in the movie. So I am curious. I don't think we spent a lot of time talking about this. How do you, how did you or do you separate out the kind of popular movie film versions of this story from your reading of the book itself? Actually, to be quite honest, it was very easy. Like I intentionally, in my reread for this conversation of the book, um, I went in saying, leave out all the characters, the beloved characters, Gene Wilder and everything, um, as you read this book. Because I know I knew the book was different than the movie already. Because I mean, I think I've read this book like, gosh, I can't remember how many times, but the last time I revisited it has been a while. And so I, I have a, a better appreciation of the book and even a more critical lens of the book, um, knowing that I didn't connect it to the movie. And... I don't know if this makes sense, but for me, it was sort of an easier task than I thought it would be mm. because I knew, I knew the book is different than the movie as the case is with most movie adaptations from a beloved children's novel or whatever. Um, any book really. Yeah. Any book. And so I, I, that's why when I, when I got the book, I really wanted, I was really looking forward to reading it because I, I have, I have the movie in my brain. In fact, anytime the movie's on, I try to watch it because I just love it so much. But when I received the book, I knew it was going to be somewhat different um, than the movie. And therefore, when I reread it for this conversation, I found it a little bit easier task because I was just so curious, like, um, how this, how the book is original uh, compared to the movie. Because obviously the movie is a result of the book. I'm more familiar with the movie. And so I wanted to be more familiar with the book. And so it was easy for me just to kind of push that movie aside. And the yeah. illustrations, the illustrations help to be quite honest. I mean, the illustrations, you, you know, it kind of helps you not think about Gene Wilder as William Wonka, you know, Wonka in the book is, you know, drawn a little bit differently, even the Oompa Loompas, you know? 
Well, the Oompa Loompas in the book are these kind of small, uh, yeah. very tiny characters. You know, the, 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 the picture, even like the picture in the book of when they go on the boat in the Chocolate River. And, um, you know, I think that I think the way the book characterizes is it is that it takes 10 Oompa Loompas to an oar or something. Right. Yeah. And you see the picture, of course, in the movie. Now, do you watch. I've never seen the Johnny Depp version. Yeah of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I've only seen the Gene Wilder version. Have you seen both? I've only seen parts of the Johnny Depp version. And from what I've read, the director, Tim Burton, tried to be more truer to the book version of, of um, the, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. So the part that I, ha- I have seen is the, the tunnel uh-huh. part. And in that scene, the the director did stay true to the book from what I recall. Like the Oompa Loompers are much smaller in the Johnny Depp movie. Um, they were like 10 to an oar in, in the Johnny Depp movie. So I think that one little scene that I have seen, I think stays true to the book. Um, But I haven't seen all of it. I'm gonna, I'm after this is over, not today, but like this, maybe this weekend or something, I am gonna watch the Johnny Depp version, but I didn't wanna watch it before this conversation. Yeah, I I, I may too, because like I said, you know, I'm a movie buff and I like some of Tim Burton's movies. I don't like most of them, but from what I've read, he tried to stay true to parts of the book. Now he did take liberties obviously and and made it more up-to-date and modern. But um, in terms of the Oompa Loompas, I think he tried to make them truer to the book. Um, And by the way, just a little side note, the Oompa Loompas are all played by one actor. uh, and so Tim Burton literally <laughs> uh, copied this one actor. Like, there's hundreds of this same actor who plays the Oompa Loompa. So oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, it's just a little movie fact for the more current version because the Gene Wilder version, obviously, they're all portrayed by different actors. But through the movie magic of CGI, Tim Burton purposely used only one actor, a yeah. New Zealand actor. Uh, and just cloned him <laughs> digitally. So every Oompa Loompa you see in the Johnny Depp version is portrayed by the same person, which I think was worth probably watching just for that. Huh, interesting. You'll hold tight two seconds so I sure. can, um, thanks. <laughs> I'm glad you, you, have a, you have a few more minutes. I mean, I yeah. know we're at our two hours, but... Um... Yeah, no. I want to make sure that you put on the end of your notes here my favorite quotes from the movie version of the book. From the movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I want you to I, talk about this a little bit. Okay, go ahead. No, just talk about it because these these quotes in and of themselves are these quotes are not in 
the book at all. Oh, the the movie quotes. The movie quotes. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, despite the movie being different in some cases from the book, the one thing I love about the Gene Wilder version of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that it is there are so there are timeless quotes in that movie, and um, you know I think everyone has heard "We are the music makers and we are the dreamers of the dreams." Um, that is so ingrained in pop culture now that um, you know you know that I listen to a wide variety array of music, and one aspect of my music listening is like EDM, electronic dance music. Um, I have heard that quote, that sample in like a couple of songs, even uh, electronic, like sort of techno songs. Uh, one of my favorite bands is 808 State. Um, you know, they, there's 808, 808 State. State. Yeah, from the 90s, it's sort of like a rave band. Mm-hmm. They have a song, um, or yeah a tune, I can't, I've gone blank on a name, I can send it to you, uh, that was very popular in the sort of rave culture, the dance culture, because they used the Gene Wadler sample. And that sort of became sort of like a, a mantra during that rave time, which I was a big fan of back when I was sort of like in the middle part of my undergraduate years. Will you send it to me because I yeah. I like to include these types of things in the show notes. You know, I can't okay, I can't yeah, use yeah. the music in the in the episode because of copyright, but I like to I like to put these types of things into oh, yeah because uh, one is a you know it's a good tune, uh, but I I know just by fact that I'm a fan of this uh, group um, during that time period is that I know that the song I'll send to you, and I can't remember the name, but you'll get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was popular because everyone connected, especially if you're a raver, because, you know, ravers were sort of like that creative bunch. But when you heard that um, that Gene Wilder quote coming up, you know, we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of the dreams, it's just like, oh, yeah, you know. And of course, there's some drug-induced culture attached to that. But for the movie, that quote just comes at the most random time. Like, I think he's telling Veruca Salt that. Um, and forgive me, you're more the Shakespeare person or classical literature, but isn't that a Shakespeare quote? Or, I don't know if it's original or what. You know but, what, Rick? I don't know. But now that you said that, I am going to find out because I have, as you know, my whole Shakespeare section of my bookshelves. Yeah. I wonder if it's a Shakespeare quote. That is a great question. It's, because the next quote I know for sure is because I did some research on it for a class, believe it or not. Uh, in the movie, you know, in the the, the movie does go on another sort of plot line than the book because you know you mentioned the fizzy lifting drinks and how grandpa joe and charlie get in trouble because uh, they they drunk they drank some of the drinks and they have wonka has to clean the ceiling now because it's all pure and whatever 
So it makes Wonka irate. Like that, even as a kid, when I was watching the movie, I would be like, Willy Wonka was such a nice man. And, and at that point where he's telling Grandpa Joe and Charlie that they did something bad, uh, there's a lot of rage in him and you see a different side of Wonka. And so again, that, that scene is a test because at that time, Charlie did steal an everlasting gobstopper, which a quote unquote spy told all the kids, grab me one of those and I'll give you money. Well, Charlie was tempted, but when he saw the rage in Wonka, Charlie felt bad because again, Charlie's good in the movie and especially in the book. Um, Charlie goes into his coat pocket and he pulls out the everlasting gobstopper and he puts it on Wonka's desk. And, you know, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when after that fit of rage, uh, Wonka is still writing his letter. He doesn't even look at Charlie, but he sees the everlasting gobstopper. And, you know, this quote, uh, he says, so shines a good deed in a weary world. And that comes from Shakespeare, um, I believe, the Mer Merchant of Venice, I think. And there's a full quote um with that but i always love that scene because uh, you know this little piece of ugly looking candy is was the final test and when when charlie puts it on wonka's desk in the movie uh, his response to it is a shakespeare quote and and it's such a you know such a beautiful quote for to describe a kid um, because, you know, when you think about it, you know, kids are, um, you know, light in a wary world. And it is after that scene that suddenly Wonka is like, he smiles and he's like, you did it, Charlie, you did it. And so it goes, you know, I see the book and the movie as sort of like the spiritual quest where, you know, Charlie was put on this journey and, and We'll never know if it was intentionally done to Charlie, you know, that someone plant the dollar bill in the slush for Charlie to find. We'll never know that. But Charlie did find a dollar bill and he was sent on this journey to where there was a lot of temptation, a lot of challenges, and even he was tempted in the movie. And at the end, you know, he he passed his test. He didn't take the gobstopper. And, and I just love the way the movie, Gene Wilder's saying of the quote, you know, at, as a kid, I didn't know it was Shakespeare. But as an adult, when I viewed it again, I, I remember I looked it up. I was like, what does that quote mean? And then I was like, oh my gosh, he, he just quoted Shakespeare. Going to my faculty self, uh, I actually, the last time I taught leadership, theory for the doctoral students. Um, I opened my lecture showing that scene from um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, talking about uh, morality and leadership, I think. And so in my huh. teachings, I always do what I call appetizers. And so I started, yeah, I started the class by saying, who's, who's, who's watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? And a few hands surprisingly raised up. I was expecting 100%, um, but I am teaching a different generation, I guess. 
And so I said, okay, well, when you viewed the movie, um, you know, what, what, what happened in the movie? And so I just kind of asked them, like, in general, tell me what the movie was about, whatever. Anyway, for just a few minutes, I got them just primed up talking about ethical decision-making as a leader. And so getting a little sense of Charlie Bucket, the character, at least using the movie, um, I explained, okay, well, this individual was promised money. Um, and if he stole a secret, he would be, he was promised that his family would be taken care of. But he didn't do that. And so I used that as an example of ethical decision-making. And, and after the scene, I had the students interpret the Shakespeare quote. So as a leader, especially in higher education, what does so shines a good deed in a weird world? So yeah, <laughs> I used that for a lesson. And, and you can, I'll, I'll send you the YouTube clip because I used the YouTube clip for the class. Okay, wow, that's really, hmm, that's pretty fascinating. So the movie, I think, does a really good job, even though it does drift off now and then. Um, I, I still think the messages are very clear and true to the book. And that's why I love the movie so much. And, and in my notes to you for this conversation, I remember I, I, I wrote to you that I, I think I saw the movie first and then I read the book, or I, I, I told myself, I need to read, I need to read the book. And, and when I read the book, it was like, I loved the movie already as a kid. I love the book now. And to the point where, like I said, in my summers going to the public library, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and any Roald Dahl books were, were my go-tos. Yeah, like I said, the only Roald Dahl book that I ever read as a child was James and the Giant Peach. And I feel sort of inclined now to go back and reread that book as yeah. an adult because I don't, I don't really remember much about the book. I just remember having the book, reading it, and I remember these like kind of weird characters, you know, like the... the yeah the insects and stuff, but yeah, I, I probably will do that at some point, go back and reread and, that and not text. Not too many people know there's a sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which isn't as good as the book, the first book, but there's a sequel. And, and I liked it because guess what? He goes to space in the class elevator. Right, and there's kind of like a teaser chapter in this version of the book that we bought yeah. that has it, you know, they go in the glass elevator. We didn't talk about the glass elevator. The impossible, like yeah, the, the elevator can go up, down, sideways, diagonal, <laughs> and so again, it's that innovation. Yeah, the science, the innovation. Mm -hmm. That Wonka could actually create something that didn't break because remember they literally burst out like a rocket. And in the movie, too, the movie does a good job in sort of the danger element. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the thing in the movie that's interesting, and again, it's different than the way the book ends with the glass elevator, is just the fact that they actually land in the book, they land the glass elevator in the house and they pick everybody up and then they go back to the factory. I don't think that's the way it is in the movie. No, in the movie... They just kind of float through above the city, right? Yeah, they're looking at the, the village, the city, and... And another quote that I love, um, you know, Wonka is just so glad that it was Charlie that gets the factory. But he reminds, you know, he reminds Charlie that, you know, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. He lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always saw that quote, like, as happy as he is, it's sort of like, um, uh, I want you to 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 respect the factory. You know, you 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 now have everything you got. Uh, you should now not have to worry, but don't let that go away. So, and then you know he hugs Charlie. And we're all like, uh, you know, in tears or like, hey. So. There's a lot of noise going on right now in the complex for some reason. I yeah. One thing that you learn as you become a podcaster or you're trying to record things is that you suddenly realize how much actually noise there is around you. No, I know. And, and my neighbors across the street have the loudest yard crew. Like, I hate it when they come because they use that gas-powered leaf blower. And it's like, hey. Yeah, and like our maintenance guy, he has the loudest truck. For some reason, he's got this like muffler truck thing, you know, and every time he drives by, it's like really loud. Anyway, um, is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? Uh, Are you okay with how we talked about the kids? Oh, I think so. I mean, we talked about... Yeah, I, I'm okay with it. Are you okay with it? Yeah, I was just making sure. My 11.30 got canceled, by the way, so yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I don't want to, like, eat up your whole day if you've got other things going on. Uh, this is the only thing I have, well, other than the open forum at three. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, we haven't talked that much about the golden ticket. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that seems like an obvious thing that we should talk about. What, what about the golden ticket? Um, yeah, because I know that's a highlighted quote and how, like, you know, we're reading about all the suffering Charlie is going through, the starvation. And, and when, even when I was reading the book, when he uncovered the rapper and he saw a glimpse of the ticket. Um, it's just like, I still had a yay moment uh, as a 50 year old adult. And in the movie it's, it's, you know, it's also the same feeling when, you know, you see that little flash of gold, it's like, he finally got it. Um, and so, you know, the, the chapter I think is interesting in the book, how that moment uh, finding the gold golden ticket is called the miracle and and again i i when i read the book i was like oh gosh you know this is like 
again, if you put your spirituality, religious lens, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's a miracle. This poor kid is, you know, we don't know how bad Charlie's health is, but a miracle did happen. And that's why I, I go back to what I said earlier that we don't really know if everything happened by luck or if everything was intentional. Like, you know, there was a, someone did plant the dollar for him to find. And, you know, Wonka is that type of person, I think, in the book. He's just so eccentric and someone who thinks about, you know, whose mind probably thinks that way that maybe he did know about Charlie all along. He just <laughs> did it in this weird sort of long-winded way. Well, even, you know, even the fact that he finds the golden ticket on January 31st and the factory doors are going to open on February 1st. And it seems to be like this last minute discovery. Um, yeah. It makes you wonder. Yeah, if it was intentional, if it was planned. You know, another thing about the golden ticket, it, and we didn't talk about this part of the book, but I was really fascinated by the way that when they bought the original chocolate bar for his birthday, and even when Grandpa Joe pulled out this kind of hidden money and gave it to Charlie to go buy another uh, chocolate yeah. bar. The, in the book, it's painted as this, they all know that there's no hope, right? It's, it's a hopeless endeavor. Yeah. Uh, they know they're not going to find it. And that's how it's painted. It's very bleak in the book. You know, yeah. oh, there's no hope. Don't get your hopes up. You know, but it's still fun to imagine that it could happen. Yeah. It's, 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 um, I see Grandpa Joe and the Golden Ticket as these, um, interesting characters in and of themselves. Um, because I, I, when I was reading the book, like, I was paying attention also to Grandpa Joe's, uh, role in all of this and how, again, at the beginning of the book, the adults aren't even characters. Uh, but Grandpa Joe becomes a major character, and and yeah, he I, I I wrote in my own notes in my reading that Grandpa Joe sees Charlie as this beacon of hope, like, and there are some things that he says that is just like, uh, you know, it, it tugs at your heart. Um, let me see if I can find one quote, like you know, he's talking about hope and and. And how he, I think it was the part where he gives him, uh, yeah, chapter nine, Grandpa Joe takes a gamble. And, and I wrote in my notes that it's a beautiful short chapter because of the, the buildup. You know, there's, there's this chocolate bar that only Grandpa Joe and Charlie know about. And it's sort of like the suspense and the possibility of, it could be in this chocolate bar. But then um, I, I read that chapter and it's like, Grandpa Joe, as much as he sees Charlie as this hopeful figure, 
uh, he's very realistic too. He's a, he's a realist. And, and he tells, again, he's telling a child this uh, before they open the chocolate bar. He says, we don't have hope really. You know, we don't have a hope, don't you? <laughs> and so it's, it's almost like Grandpa Joe is like, you know, a kid. You know, he sees a lot of Charlie or he, you know, he, he's almost like a kid, like all these kids looking for the bar, but in their family, Charlie is hope and Grandpa Joe is sort of like Charlie, but he's sort of like this reminder that our family has never had hope. <laughs> yeah, I really, I like that character and I like that the just in general, I like the way that the family is this kind of intergenerational, yeah. you know, they all live under one roof. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a subtle reminder that despite all their poverty, that it's a very loving, caring family. Because remember the Buckets, Charlie's parents, who are are barely in the book, <laughs> you know, they're only in the first yeah, part of the really. book at the very end. Um, it's all about Grandpa Joe and Charlie in between. Um, but his parents are busy taking care of their parents, like yep. the, Charlie's grandparents. And it's not just like one bunch. It's, it's you know, both. Mrs. Bucket's parents and Mr. Bucket's parents. And so, you know, and I think that's that's why Charlie is so good is that his parents are good people too. Um, I don't know if they had any alternatives to caring for their elderly parents, but they decided, you know, we're gonna do what's best. And even though you can only get out of your bed once in a while, uh, we're gonna feed you, we're gonna take care of you. And so, yeah, it's just it's just interesting how the book sets up the whole family. Well, and I love the, you know, like one of the quotes I had written down and I sent to you was on page eight. The quote is, you know, often Charlie's mother and father would come in as well and stand by the door, listening to the stories that the old people told. Yeah. And thus for perhaps half an hour every night, this room would become a happy place. Yeah. And the whole family would forget that it was hungry and poor. And I, I love it because I, I love it from the perspective of listening to the stories that our elders tell us and everyone's together, this kind of communal aspect of intergenerational living, which is not really a super important part of our culture, but I think is becoming increasingly important. I don't know. Yeah. Um, as our parents get older, as you know, I mean, even the relationship that you have with your own, with your mother, for example, mm -hmm. you know, I just think, or, or the relationship that I have with my mother, um, I just think about, yeah. Or I think about like, because my mom goes and takes care of my brother's kids a lot. They don't live together, but my mom is always at my brother's house with the grandchildren. Um, and I think that that's been true for both of my, for both of two of my siblings that have kids, mm -hmm. my parents have been highly involved in their life. They live very close to my parents. I don't have children, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, even my, my mom, uh, before the pandemic, 
um, you know, it was important for us to have like my nieces and nephews interact with their grandmother. And even, you know, even my niece and my nephew and their spouses and partners, like especially my niece, she's been so wonderful to my mom during this uh, COVID crisis. You know, she's being very mindful of her interactions with others. She's been mostly staying at home, but um, heard her husband go visit my mom to to make sure that she's okay. But I, I, I hear from my sister or from my niece herself that uh, when they go visit my mom, guess what? My mom starts talking, telling stories. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because uh, my last visit, I did visit my mom during the COVID time um, just to check up and made a short visit. But yeah, it, you know, we're eating breakfast and, and it's amazing how I'm still finding out stories. Um, mm-hmm. When we're eating breakfast, we were talking about, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter and all the marches that recently occurred, at least at that time. And so out of the blue, my mom just says, well, you know, your dad was discriminated against before we got married. And I'm like, no, tell me more. Anyway, she told this short story about how my dad was applying for an office job and he had the skills, according to her. But in the interview, the the interviewer told my dad, uh, you know, saying Jimmy, my dad went by his nickname, Jimmy. He's like, Jimmy, you know, you have all the skills that we want working in this job. And again, it was an office job. I think it sounded like my dad went in a suit and everything. Um, he said, you have all the skills that we need, um, but it's too bad that you're a Mexican. And my dad didn't get the job, according to my mom. Um, and wow. she said that he was about maybe early 20s. And again, it was before they were married. Yeah. And so I'm still learning these stories about like, um, you know, from my, from elders, um, uh, about, you know, injustice, I guess. And that's a new story for me. And then guess what? I, I text my elder, my, one of my tias, um, she's one of the few that is on social media and does texting. And so, Anyway, we were just chatting via text, and I told her that, yo, yeah, mom told me a story about her, you know, dad. And she's like, well, you know, your dad got accepted at SMU, but he was unable to go. And I knew that story, but then, you know, stories start connecting to each other. My dad never went to SMU. He got accepted to SMU, which is a pretty big deal when you think I would think so, yeah. you know, he was a smart individual, but a lot of these barriers came across his way that didn't allow him to get opportunities. Your dad went to college or he never, he never went? No, but he had opportunity to. And he was smart enough to go to a school that is still, you know, very yeah. highly selective. Um, I don't know. I heard bits and pieces on why he didn't go to SMU, but add my mom's story to it because he was living in Dallas as a single, like from what it sounds like, a single young man at the time. 
mm-hmm. uh, who was eventually going to marry my mom, that I'm only assuming um, that he was applying for this office job to get a better salary. Um, but guess what? The interviewer flat out said, too bad, you know, you have everything we want, um, but you're Mexican. And so he wasn't given the job. Um, SMU apparently said, you have everything we want. We don't care if you're Mexican, but for some reason, which I need to find out, um, dad decided not to attend SMU. Wow. I may, I may follow up on that story. Now you got me thinking about it. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to the book, that's, that's the, the benefit of, of having your elders under your same roof and, and Grandpa Joe is, is serving that role yeah. for, for his grandson. Well, and I love that he's the one who ends up going with Charlie to the chocolate factory. Yeah. Because he is this kind of, you know, he is this older, they're, they're all painted as if they're in their 90s. You know, I think they say he's like 96, right? He's 96 years old or something. And I, I just love that visual image. Even the picture in the book where you know, when Charlie does get the ticket and he comes home and the, there's that picture of the grandpa jumping out of the bed and Dancing. being so excited that he, that he got the ticket and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. So, And right, the parents pretty much looked at each other and said, it's not us. It's, it's not us. It's, it's Grandpa, grandpa Joe. Joe. Yeah. Because like the dad is like, I have to go work. And the mom is like, I have, someone has to stay here and take care of the other grandparents. So, hmm. Yeah. Well, I love the book. I love that you chose this book. I remember way back when we were starting this quest several months ago that you said that I was going to be surprised by your book choice. Yeah. And I think I took, a, I took a gamble. I mean, like I, I think said, it's I, wonderful. I, I I know about your podcast and your plans, but I was like, what book can I pick? And and I, I like I said, it was sort of a journey just selecting it. But part of me is like, let me throw a little curveball at you for this. And and like I said, in in talks with you. It's like, I, I really do feel like this was a book that put me on my journey of like being, being a good person, uh, being an inquisitive mind, and even to this day, being creative. I, I love creativity. Um, in my teaching, you know, I, I get my students to do, um, you know, out of the box stuff. You I do. don't know if they like it, but, you know, oh, well, <laughs> you're going to do it. But I think in the end, I think most of them do appreciate it. And, you know, I just I just was reminded that this book really speaks to me now as an adult. And I connect my adult self to my child self and how even as a kid, I liked, you know, creativity. I liked science and the weather and things like that. And. That's why this book just sort of spoke to me when you invited me. It's like, let me let me throw a kid's novel in there and see 
how it's discussed. And even I was surprised. Like, I was like, oh, gosh, this is connecting to my spirituality readings. And well, I loved it. Um, I'm so appreciative. And I'm appreciative of your different reading of the book. Um, yeah. I think it gives us a lot to think about. And it's one of the great joys of being able to talk about books with people who are brilliant like you. Oh, thank you. So and, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you having this avenue to talk differently about books. I think it's a fascinating venture you're taking. So I, I can't wait to see what this book connects to in the future. Yeah. I'm glad that a child's children's literature is part of the connection. Piece. Absolutely. I'm going to stop the recording now. <laughs>